everyone will recognize. And um, so part of the, t- uh, uh, the um, intention of, of uh, bringing up the, the subject uh, today and uh, choosing this as a, as a theme was because of the, uh, you know, our tendency to, to take sides and to, to judge, to leap to conclusions. And um, uh, this is something that uh, appears in all of our lives in, in different ways, and particularly because of, of last year, maybe many of you know that there was a, uh, a, an ordination um, that uh, took place in Australia, bhikkhuni ordination that happened at one of the uh, branch monasteries of um, our tradition uh, in Western Australia. And um, in Thailand, uh, the, uh, the authorities don't recognize the validity of full ordination for, for women. They, they see that the bhikkhuni ordination died out in Sri Lanka as the last recorded nuns of the classical era about a thousand years ago. And uh, <coughs> so that since Buddhism came to Thailand about 800 years ago, so that uh, uh, basically the Thai view is that the nuns died out before Buddhism ever came to Thailand. And then according to the... the um, uh, uh, the monastic rule, then um, it's understood that you need to have nuns to ordain other nuns. So if the nuns order has died out, then um, it, quote, can't be reinstituted, unquote. And that's, that's the, the, the view of the Thai authorities. Um, interestingly enough, I don't want to do the whole afternoon on this, this theme, but just to <laughs> give a bit of background, um, I could easily. <laughs> but... Uh, the, um, the Theravada uh, lineage of nuns was actually carried to China in the 5th century. Um, the, first, the first nun in, in China was actually ordained just by, by monks. Ching um, Qian, I think was her name, and she was ordained in 357 uh, uh, in China. And then, um, but then... Uh, Seventy years later, in 432 uh, of the common era, uh, a group of nuns were invited from Sri Lanka and uh, on the invitation of the Chinese uh, emperor and uh, um, women in in China who were interested in being ordained as nuns and uh, 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 the head of the the Sangha there called um, Sangha Varman, who was the kind of patriarch in China, and then they asked for nuns to come from Sri Lanka, and so then this group of nuns uh, arrived uh, in 432, um, came to China, landed at Nanking, and um, this ordinations were carried out. And so the ordination of the lineage of nuns, of bhikshunis in China, uh, sprang from, from a Sri Lankan root. That's where the, the order of uh, fully ordained nuns in China started from. And then they've carried on over the centuries. And the Chinese uh, are incredible historians. <laughs> so not only do they record sort of the uh, the, the the names of the of the nuns who came and uh, and the, where the boat landed and when, but even the name of the captain of the ship. Yeah. And uh, and then through the centuries, all the whole lineage of nuns, uh, who the preceptors were, who the candidates were, and then the lineage of ordination is all there in the Chinese history books that people have tracked down and uh, and looked through the records. So. Um, many of the women in the, in the Theravada world who wanted to take full ordination have quite readily gone to the Chinese or Korean uh, 
lineages which stem from the same place and taken ordination through the, the Chinese line and then, and then uh, say, have uh, established themselves under the, 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 say, the flag of the Theravada and saying, well, we're Theravada nuns, but we took our ordination from China, but that originally came from Sri Lanka. It just did a little detour for 1,500 years. Um, so anyway, um, that lineage of, of, through China is, is not recognized as being valid in Thailand. In Sri Lanka, one of the, the four different uh, Nikayas or lineages in Sri Lanka does recognize it, and so that um, there have been ordinations of Sri Lankan, uh, uh, Sri Lankan women and other, other women from Thailand and from Western, Western women as fully ordained nuns in, in Sri Lanka, uh, mostly at a place called Dambula, which, interestingly enough, is the place where the Pali Canon was first written down. <laughs> Dambula, the Caves of Light, the same place as where they had the ordination for, uh, for the bhikkhunis in Sri Lanka. <laughs> So there's now about 500 bhikkhunis in Sri Lanka. But uh, as I understand it, they're, they're, they're from this one of the, of the four lineages. Um, so uh, in, in Australia, um, there was a lot of interest to have a full ordination for, uh, for women. Uh, Ajahn Brahmawangso, who's a very admirable and, and fine monk, a, a good teacher, he's um, someone I've known for more than 30 years. Uh, he decided to go ahead with this ordination. Um, without consulting with the rest of the branch monasteries of, uh, of our community. So we, we function very much as a family. We're a global family. And so it's like if you're working in a, in a school uh, and then somebody in the history department, uh, without consulting you know, the, 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 uh, the, kind of the school officials or the English department or the math department or the, the uh, science department, they, just, they decide to have a, um, a kind of... Uh, to set things up completely in their own way, to kind of, if you like, something like reschedule all their classes irrespective of what the rest of the school was doing. So it was taking a big step outside of the, uh, of the group um, agreements um, without, a con without consultation. Obviously, there's different opinions, whether there was consultation or whether there wasn't. <laughs> but just to give a, 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 a broad overview, um, people felt that they hadn't been consulted. <laughs> a lot of people in a lot of different places, felt they hadn't been consulted. And it was suddenly out of the blue, this ordination is, is going to happen. And um, there was not a permission being sought, but just being told, this is going to happen next week. So there was very little, um, very little warning and uh, very little consultation. Well, there seemed to be very little consultation and seemed to be very little warning, just to be accurate. Um, so the ordination went ahead, and there were four women that were, who'd been living as nuns in the, the um, uh, uh, Damasara Monastery in Western Australia. And uh, Ajahn Brahm oversaw the, the uh, ordination. Ayatata Loka, who lives here in the Bay Area, uh, who was a, a nun in the Korean tradition uh, for many years. She switched to being Theravadan about five years ago, but she was a, in the nun in the Korea, uh, fully ordained in the Korean tradition. Um, had an ordination uh, in Los Angeles. She became a, a bhikshuni there. Um, and she acted as the preceptor for the, for the nuns who were being ordained. So this um, was a... Um, it was very well-intentioned. Uh, Ajahn Brahm uh, felt that, that things were very stuck in, in Thailand and the Thai tradition, and this was a good way to move things forward and felt that 
offering equal opportunity for women in their ordination was was um, completely appropriate and uh, and suitable. Um, the uh, the result of having gone ahead with the ordination without consulting or getting the agreement of the rest of the members of the community, and we have like 300 branch monasteries. There's about 20 in the West, about uh, 280 or 300 in Thailand. So there's a lot of different people in, involved. Um, and so that his uh, choosing to go ahead with that, um, that action uh, uh, caused, as I'm sure many of you were, are well aware, there was a huge amount of traffic through the internet blogs and emails and, and, and petitions were raised and so forth. Um, again, I don't want to go into a, a, you know, a huge amount of exhaustive detail, but on the theme of the day, there was a tremendous amount of, I'm right, you're wrong. Um, everyone uh, from, from the people who supported the ordination, they had their own, their own uh, causes and, and, and feelings that, that they were right, and that all those who uh, opposed it or said that it was not valid or that it wasn't right or it shouldn't have been done that way, uh, they also have their, their causes and reasons. And, and the, uh, the amount of position-taking and, uh, and flack that went on was really incredibly disheartening. And uh, these you know, all good people, well-intentioned people, we're all sort of in this as a sort of family, <laughs> family together. But it was really striking the degree to which, uh, on on all sides and all shades of the spectrum, people tended to take their position, make a case for it, and then t to uh, set up an opposition against uh, the other, <laughs> whoever the other is. So this was a, a really very much a case in point of this issue, and with. You know, Theravada monastic world, it's a pretty small fishbowl, really. I mean, it's our fishbowl, <laughs> but it, it's, a, it's not a huge thing in the greater scheme of the world. But it is within our own sphere and within the people interested in Buddhist practice and involved in that for many decades. It's a big thing. It's a powerful thing and has affected many of our lives very strongly. So that's why I felt that uh, looking at this theme in particular, of seeing how when when we take hold of a, of a fixed view, a fixed position, then what happens is that then our, uh, our opposition to another, the other, becomes um, a force that, ex that really obscures the real issues at question. It kind of blurs the picture and makes us unable to see in a, in a broad or a, 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 a helpful or an effective way. It's very hard to see the other person's point of view if we're... <laughs> locked in on my, my rightness, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's how it works. So um, that's why I felt just to take some time to explore that, how does this feeling of, of rightness uh, come into being? And uh, it's not like I don't want to take the day to be sort of deciding <laughs> like a sort of court of, or a debate and have a, have a vote as to who was actually right and who was actually wrong. Because <laughs> actually is actually a really dangerous word. <laughs> <laughs> rightness, rightness and actually. Be in the, the word right and the word actually, these are loaded words. These, they have incredible power. And again, if you notice how many times in the day we use the word, well, actually. <laughs> to say, well, this is the real truth. This is the real, real truth. So there was a, it was an extraordinarily painful time 
for, for many of us in, in our community and feeling uh, wanting, to, wanting to support the, the, the women who had taken the ordination and then also just the whole role of, 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 uh, of uh, the nuns' order in uh, the Theravada monastic world and Buddhist tradition generally. These are big issues. These are powerful issues. But to me, I, I feel that it's, it's more important that we, we learn to work with our own points of view and see that in a context rather than trying to just have, a, have a, an argument about who's right and who's wrong, or, or just sort of siding with one, with one group and then creating a, a sense of alienation against the, the other. And to, in a sense, to show how the more that we learn to understand the mind's um, way it relates to opinions, teaches us how to relate skillfully to situations, and difficult situations, moral con you know, conundrums and and difficulties that we, we find ourselves in throughout our, our, our lives. Um, and so that uh, the... Um, my hope is that, that with, with a, uh, a broader understanding of, of both the sense of, of uh, criticizing another or feeling somebody else is wrong, or being attacked ourselves. And I thought I would look at that particularly this afternoon, this feeling of being criticized, being attacked, being misunderstood, being misrepresented. You know, what does that feel like and how do we work with that? Because uh, obviously as a, as, as a Theravada monk, <laughs> as a male member of the, of the community, then uh, also just to be quite frank, the sense of, well, we were always the good guys. You know, the, the, the Ajahn Chah lineage and uh, the you know, Theravada monasticism, you know, this sort of... The general sense of well, you know, we're we're getting it right, and we <laughs> we're kind of uh, everything's everything's good and rosy, and you know we keep the rules, and uh, our teachers are brilliant, wise arahant, and really charming and witty, and you know, isn't isn't this great? And you you have these kind of unconscious assumptions that grow up over the years, like well, we're we're really kind of a a good team. You know? <laughs> we re we're really are, we really are the good guys, and then suddenly. Yeah, you, the, the words Wat Bapong, or you know, Ajahn Chah, and go, oh. suddenly you mention the, the names, the, the monks, and then the atmosphere chills in the room. And, you know, things become tight. Now, them, you know, those you know, evil patriar patriarchal misogynists. <laughs> you know. And suddenly, oh, we're not, we're, we just became the bad guys. What, what happened? You know, how did that happen? Um, so, and that's, and all of us, you know, whether you've been in a relationship that's broken up or uh, you've been fired from a job or you had a reshuffle at, the, at your, you know, your school department, or <laughs> whatever it might be, that there's suddenly, uh, there's these shifts in our life and then we find ourselves in these polarized positions and the sense of whether we're polarized or not is, is really up to us. And one of the things that I, I'd, I like to begin the afternoon with, and we'll certainly open things up for questions in a bit, is um, what it's like to be attacked and the feeling of self-defense and um, the feeling of, of being misunderstood. So there's, there's a well-known teaching in the Sangyutta Nikaya, um, the Connected Discourses, um, called, uh, called Bar uh, it's about this, uh, this guy called... Uh, Akosaka Bharadvaja, which means Bharadvaja the Abusive. That was his name. 
I think it was probably just a nickname. <laughs> but he's gone down in history as Bharadvaja, Akosaka Bharadvaja, Bharadvaja the, the abusive. And so uh, this, this particular fellow, the, the, the Brahmins, in the Theravada Buddhist scriptures, the Brahmins, they become the fall guys. So if there's any people from a Brahmin background, please excuse me. <laughs> But in the Theravada scriptures, they, they, they become the fall guys. They, they become the kind of the ones who always say the, the stupid and wrong things. Like in the northern Buddhist texts, you often get the arahants, the, sort of the, uh, the, the stuffy arahants of the fall guys. It's always Sariputta or uh, Moggallana who are always saying stupid, selfish things. But uh, in the Theravada texts, the, uh, it's the Brahmins often get put in the position of saying that the dumb and stupid and egotistical roles. Yeah, it's, well, it's what Joseph, Joseph Campbell called mythic defamation. <laughs> mythic defamation. So it's like you characterize the other guy, those stupid guys. Oh, those Brahmins, you know, they're proud, uh, haughty pundits. That's what they're like. So that they, you know, so it's not like Theravada Buddhism is, is uh, was ever free from um, kind of, uh, say, position taking. Yeah, and it was, it's always been part of that. But anyway, in this particular story, Bharadvaja the Abusive, um, he's heard that another member of the Bharadvaja clan has, has um, met the Buddha and has become a, a, a disciple, has been ordained as a monk and has joined the Buddha's community. So he's really upset about this. And so he, uh, he goes to, to see the Buddha and he, he lays into him, you know, criticizing him and, uh, and abusing him and slandering him and verbally attacking him. And uh, it's, you know, he's really upset that this member of his, his family has uh, sort of disgraced the, the Brahmins and gone off to join this, this bunch of, of wandering uh, summoners. And so then the, the Buddha uh, you know, listens to this, this verbal attack and he says, um, Bharadvaja, can I ask you a question? Says, yes. Um, so is it the case that sometimes uh, friends or relatives come and visit you? Yes, of course. You know, I mean, I'm a householder. I'm, I have an ordinary family life. Of course, people come and visit me. Why? Well, if you have people come and visit you, family or friends, is it your custom to offer them some refreshments, some, something to drink or some food or some snack you know, when, they, when they come to see you? Well, of course it is. You know, it's just a normal, civilized, polite thing to do. And, uh, and if when you offer them this snack or this drink or this refreshment, some food to eat, if they decline to accept it, then to whom does it belong? Well, if they haven't accepted it, it's still mine, of course. Why do you ask? Well, Brahmin, you offer me your anger. Now, I don't accept it. So, it still belongs to you. It still belongs to you, Brahmin. It still belongs to you. So that's how Akosaka, Bharadvaja, went down in history. And then, uh, then the, the, um, he wasn't pleased with that at first, but then the, the Buddha came up with these spontaneous verses and he said, One who repays an angry person with anger thereby only makes things worse. Not repaying an angry one with anger, one wins a battle hard to win. One practices for the welfare of both, for your own and for the other, when, knowing that the, the foe, the other person, is angry, one mindfully maintains one's peace. So, um, and at that, then 
<laughs> Bharadvaja, the abusive, said, oh, please forgive me, I was terribly rude and upset and uh, asked to go forth. And he also became a monk, and then eventually he became an arahant. So he became an enlightened disciple of the, of the Buddha, eventually. So it's all kind of all right that he went down in history as Bharadvaja, the abusive, because <laughs> it, it ended happily. So that, again, is one of these, these very um, precise ways of articulating things, just like Ajahn Chah saying, you, know, you are right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma, which is a very helpful and important principle to take in, that we can be right in fact, we can have all of our uh, the, all of the list of wrongdoings, that yes, you know, at the meeting it was said like this, and you made that decision, and you're, un- you're misunderstanding this, you don't understand the, 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 uh, the background. We can have all of our good reasons, but we can be right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. So similarly with, with uh, Bharadvaja, the abusive, when someone attacks us, right? And when I'm attacked, I feel defensive, right? You tighten up. And then the mind immediately starts to come up with things to defend yourself with. Like you, you, my mind will create um, the, the yes but list, <laughs> right? We're all familiar with this. <laughs> And you start to prepare what you're going to come back with and why they're wrong. And, uh, and so that we imme- when someone attacks us verbally or, or physically, um, but let's talk about just verbally for the time being, then we instinctively pick up that attack. We pick up their mood that the person is in. And then we, we react to that. And, de- and try to defend ourselves, to push that away, or just to, to shut down, to keep that out. Um, now, what is demonstrated in this, uh, in this exchange with, with the Buddha and Akosaka is that uh, you know, the, the, this, the, the fellow comes up, and he's in an angry state, and he verbally attacks the Buddha, and then the Buddha just doesn't pick it up, just like someone offering you a dish of food, and you, and you, you say, fine, you... you, you Nice dish you've got there. <laughs> uh, and basically recognizing that's yours. Not shutting down and saying it's your problem. Not shutting down, but just saying that's your state. It's just like um, if, uh, if you're very excited about something and you come bounding into your home or your office or wherever, you say, I can't believe it, it's incredible, such and such happened. And then, uh, or you know, maybe you're really enthusiastic about sports. Say you're really excited that uh, Chelsea beat Aston Villa 7-1 last weekend. <laughs> Absolutely creamed them. Maybe you're really excited about that. And you come bounding into your office and say, Chelsea totally creamed Aston Villa. It's amazing. It's incredible. 7-1, Premier League game. And you have absolutely no interest or knowledge in English football. <laughs> and you go, oh... Well, good. And then, so you've come in with your enthusiasm and your excitement. Or uh, similarly, if, if you, come in to, you come to me and you make some comment about the uh, American football or about baseball, I can't even understand the language. You know, I see a, like a newspaper or a magazine article about a baseball game. I can't understand what all half the terms mean. So that then you come bounding in with your enthusiasm and then the other person, they're not saying, get out of my face. They're not saying... Oh, wow, that's incredible. They're just like, that has no meaning to me. <laughs> They're not swept up in your enthusiasm. 
And then what happens when you, when you meet that, I mean, probably all of us have had some kind of experience like this, then they're not pushing you away, but they're not interested in picking up what you've got. They just don't care about Chelsea. <laughs> or Aston Villa. <laughs> and then, so what happens with, with, within us, or what happens with me is something goes, oh. <laughs> it just sort of deflates, right? So similarly, what the Buddha's doing with that an angry attack not, not, is just saying, that's your state. You're, you're excited. You're upset about this. I don't have to pick that up. Like if someone's challenging, you, challenging, someone, challenging someone to a duel, they kind of slap, like in the old movies, you know, slap them in the face and throw the glove, the gauntlet down. Go, oh, nice glove. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to pick it up. You know, that you're, you're not picking up the state that the person's bringing to you but not out of fear, not out of aversion, uh, but just recognizing that's the state that they're in. You're not shutting them out. You're not saying, I don't care. Mm -hmm. But that's the state that you're in. I don't have to take part in that state of mind. It's a choice that we make to pick that up and join in, right? Mm -hmm. Now, normally we don't see that because we feel like we're obligated to for some peculiar reason. <laughs> we're obligated to join in the excitement. We're obligated to join in the outrage or the anger, that we somehow, it's what we're supposed to do. But there really isn't as opposed to, I would suggest. But more recognizing that, oh, this is the state that this person's in, this is what they're bringing. Do I want to pick it up or not? Is this, is this going to be helpful? Is this going to be beautiful, useful to pick this up? Or, or, or what? Do I want to pick it up in the terms that they're offering it? Now, I know I'm, I'm a, a real jump-in kind of a guy. <laughs> so I, I talk about this because I've learned so much from, or tried to learn, <laughs> I would have liked to have learned a lot from having just immediately jumped in because I would just immediately get, uh, would empathize with the person's mood and just join right in. And then a, a while later, I think, why am I so sort of excited about this? Or why I don't even really care about this? Or, why am I defending myself? I, I didn't, you know, th th what this person's upset about is not anything to do with me, really. And only recognizing later, I didn't have to pick that up. And it was out of a wish to empathize or a sense, a, a, a misguided sense of wanting to be supportive, wanting to be connected or not to be uh, uh, rejecting someone. You join in with the, the mindset, right? I don't, I'm not trying to get too technical here, but just how, how that happens, is, is, it's a, a, a very common feeling, it's a common chemistry. We join in with their mood because we feel we should or we, we have to, or just out of habit. So in learning to work with, with grasping opinions and, uh, and taking hold of opinions and views, a lot of what we, we uh, uh, can learn to do is to, to receive the mood to, to uh, accept and acknowledge the mood of another and to, to know that, to be aware of it, but then to recognize we have a choice. There's a bridge that we can cross. Do we choose to join in with that or do we choose to, to leave it alone? And uh, one of the things that's, that's very, very helpful in this is developing body awareness using the, the, uh, the physical sensations 
uh, it's the same when you get upset with another, or when, or whether you're being, uh, or uh, or irritated with another, or whether you're being attacked, uh, criticized, being misunderstood, being misrepresented. This is really these are really prime opportunities for practice. <laughs> Pops. <laughs> That just came to me. So. <laughs> just popped in. So, to be to be mindfully misunderstood, to be misrepresented, um, it's a, it's, it takes a lot because we want to jump in and say, no, 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 it wasn't like that. That's not what I think. I'm not that way. I didn't do that. It wasn't me. Uh, no, you don't understand. And then the the very sort of breathless jumping in and trying to make it right, trying to fix it, as Lao Tzu uh, once put it. Those who justify themselves do not convince. The, the very energy of self-justification feeds that, that uh, same kind of uh, contention. So using the, the, the physical awareness, body awareness, when we're attacked or when we're, we are being... Um, mistreated or misunderstood, rather than letting the mind go into the, the verbal response or some kind of escape strategy, <laughs> just to bring the attention into the body and to feel, what's that like? The sense of, I'm being attacked here. <laughs> or, you know, just even Not even when it's person to person, just reading an email from someone attacking you <laughs> or criticizing you or your community or uh, whatever, or you know, hearing something through another just rather than the, the letting the mind buy into that self-justification, sort of the spluttering, self-affirming habit, to, to come back into the body and like, okay, where do I feel that? What's that like? What's the texture of that? What's the, uh, the position? What, what's the place in the body where I, I feel that? The sense of indignation or fear or, or threat? You know, but no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not like that. Oh. Okay, that's about here. <laughs> you know, we all have our different geographies, so it's it's really helpful to explore that, um, and to to look where in the body do we feel these different emotional states, and then to develop a mindfulness of the body, bringing the attention to that that part of the body. And to really know that feeling, like when, when we are frightened, or we're under pressure, or we're criticized, to, to bring attention to that in the body. And so with the, the med first meditation period that we have, we'll, we'll, we'll look at this. But one of the things that I want to um, stress with this is that whenever we, when, when you, you look at an emotion like that, when we're frightened, or we're upset, or we're threatened, when we, can't, when we look at the, the physical sensation, when we really allow ourselves to feel that, it's not pleasant, right? It's, 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 it's an unpleasant thing. And so our habit is to try and get away from that. And we get away from it through telling a story or through you know, burning off the energy somehow. But when we bring the attention right to that and let ourselves feel that fear in the belly or that that breathlessness, uh, choking in the in the throat, or the 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 dagger between the shoulder blades, whatever it might be. When we go right to it, it's actually not that bad. 
actually. <laughs> Dangerous word. <laughs> Sorry about that. That wasn't deliberate. Uh, my experience has been that it isn't that bad. It's not as, as painful to say as a, as a migraine headache or a, or a toothache. It's uncomfortable, but it's just like being out in a cold wind or having a, 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 like a, a, a twinge in the knee or a, you know, a discomfort, but it's not that bad. And the, the, the urgency with which we try to get away from that feeling far outweighs the, the felt experience of that discomfort. And so when, uh, when we are working with this, it's a lot to do with loving kindness and a kindness towards that painful feeling. Kindness meaning not that we're trying to like it, but a recognizing here it is. This, is. this is what it's like when you are outraged, when you are upset, when you are feeling grief. Um, then to bring that, that attention right to that and having loving kindness for it is to that clear, open-hearted acceptance. So here it is. This is the feeling of grief. This is the feeling of, of threat. This is the feeling of, of uh, falling apart. It's like this. And then to stay with that, to not, and to, it's really difficult, the most difficult thing for us to do is to not do anything with it. Because we immediately jump into, oh, it's a feeling, right, how do I get rid of this? Right? <laughs> okay, unpleasant feeling, how do I get rid of it? That's the immediate reaction. That, that urgency to get rid of creates the causes for it to be... Uh, enlivened and, and made stronger and made more real. This is a, the, because the mind is saying, this is a real thing that is in the way. If I got rid of this, then I would be happy. Reasonable enough. <laughs> but when we act on that, we just create, we intensify the causes for it. So instead, to just go to that feeling and just let it be known. This is the, the cramping in the belly. This is a tightness in the throat. This is the, 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 the knife between the shoulder blades. It feels like this, and it's that very open acceptance of it as it is without trying to do anything with it. The very act of awareness, in a way, that's the thing that you're doing with it. That is the transforming agent, is the presence of awareness. Because when the, that, those, those feelings, those painful sensations are, are held with a genuine, open, unbiased awareness, then uh, that's when the, the, the actual letting go, the genuine relaxation uh, can begin. It's a, a relaxation based not on, not on trying to get rid of, but on the, on the recognition of, why am I doing this to myself? Why, why, why do I hate this? Why do I fear this? Why am I tensing up against this? This is hard work. And there's something, it's, not, it's a non-conceptual realization. Something, a little intuition murmurs in there and says, why, do I, why am I doing this to myself? I don't have to do this. Lighten up. <laughs> and something softens on its own. The, the, the quality of, of awareness itself is like a heat lamp on a knotted muscle. After a while, something goes, ah. That's hard to put into words. <laughs> But I think we all know that sense of, oh, that's better. <laughs> so as long as it's, 
It's just tr learning to trust that quality of awareness, letting that rest on the place of tension, on the place of, of, of discomfort, and then the, the staying with that and letting the, the presence of, a, of a, a loving, attentive awareness then just loosen that up. And, and then we see for ourselves, just like with the exercise this morning, it's, it's similarly, it's coming back to the very root of it. It's a, it's a way of coming back to the source and realizing that's no big thing. It's really not that big of a thing. Oh, it's just a feeling. Why do I do this to myself? And then we relax. So, with this, uh, with this kind of, uh, of practice and to, to uh, work with these same kind of feelings, um, this is what uh, I'd like to uh, explore at the beginning of the afternoon. And, and I, I, I'm happy to take a few questions now but um, there'll be a, a, a more substantial period for questions and answers and discussion later in the, in the afternoon. But if you've got any particular questions right now... Yeah, Edward. Over there. So wait, if you could wait for the microphone. Semantically, staying with a feeling and holding on to a feeling appear to be the same thing. <laughs> but I would wonder if you would uh, um, inform us about the differentiation between the two and how we deal with that. Uh, that's a good question. Well, one of the, the uh, most often quoted uh, explanations of this or talking about this is where uh, outside of the, of the ordination hall at Wat Bapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery, a formerly of great repute, <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a big rock, and one time Long Po Chao said, someone was asking him uh, about, um, about clinging and holding on, and he said, see that rock? He said, yeah. Is that, is that rock heavy? Yeah, it's a huge rock. Yeah, of course it's heavy. He says, not if you don't try to pick it up. <laughs> So you can stand right next to the rock, you can sit on top of the rock. You can be right with it, but unless you're trying to pick it up, then it's, it's not, uh, it's a different thing, it's, it's not heavy. So that um, the quality of awareness, uh, ideally, when, when that's really refined, there can be a, a knowing, wow, this is a, this is an intense grief, I really feel very sad. Or, this is rage. I feel this is incredible uh, aversion and and, and uh, destructive anger. You can and then feeling that, and knowing that, and saying, "Wow, that's a strong one. Ooh, that's a doozy. <laughs> Look at that one go." And to know it, but to not not buy into it or get caught up in it. Similarly, somebody else's intense feeling. They're incredibly excited. About something, or very frightened, or or um, upset, sad, or or angry, any of the those sort of uh, intense emotions, and to you can be standing like like standing right next to the rock. Yeah, it's a big rock. It's a big emotion, but we're not picking it up. 
easy to say, difficult to do. Yes. Well, I'm a little confused. Um, you said that um, how does um, the sympathetic joy relates to um, expressing enthusiasm for someone's, somebody's enthusiasm? Well, like you, you were saying that you know we're expressing enthusiasm for someone's someone's enthusiasm, even though we're not interested in it. <laughs> but there is some. How does sympathetic joy relate to it? Uh, with mi with mindfulness. You know, it's just like if a little kid, you know, makes something um, that they've they've drawn a picture, and they come rush, rushing up to you. A little two-year-old comes rushing up to you with their picture, and they go, "Look what I drew!" And you know, you're you're uh, accepting their their enthusiasm and their excitement, but you yourself are not excited about this. They may, they might have thought they've drawn a beautiful horse. <laughs> you, don't, you don't really see the horse there, <laughs> and it wasn't your drawing, but you, you can certainly empathize with their, their feeling, but you're not excited in, this, in the same way. So that, but also, uh, with, with the Brahma-viharas, it's often not a matter of choosing. It's not a, a, like a theoretical choice. Like, okay, three units of mudita and you know, <laughs> one and a half of karuna and a, and a handful of metta tossed in. You know. it's, it's much more of an intuitive process. And so sometimes when someone's you know, excited or enthusiastic, then, then what, what arise, the, the mudita that can arise can be something that you, you, it, it feels appropriate to express and to, to say, give voice to. Um, and another time, it, you know, it, it can be just that you are, yeah, you appreciate that they're excited, but it's, and you know, you're happy for them, but it, it doesn't form into any kind of a expression. You know, it just, so it's important to be, to be true to your own feeling, and that can only really come from mindfulness. If you think, I should always be happy when other, you know, for other people's happiness, and I should always express it like this, then we're, we're going to... Um, make life very uncomfortable and complicated. So it's much more drawing upon the quality of a mindful attunement to the moment. And if it's, if it's appropriate to, to speak up and express an approval or uh, to just express what you're feeling. Because sometimes, you know, when, when someone's, say, really angry with you or really upset about something, and they come, they come charging at you and they're, they're, uh, they're really enraged, then Sometimes the, the most helpful thing can, can be to say, you're really, up, you're really upset, aren't you? Not from a patronizing point of view, but like, wow, you're, you're really upset about this. You're not upset yourself, but you're giving voice to the fact that you're recognizing that they are. Um, but and in one moment, that might be the abs absolutely the perfect thing to say. Two seconds later, it might come across as the most patronizing and irritating <laughs> comment, but you have to, uh, we have to, to learn to, to attune to the moment, really, uh, as to what's, what's appropriate. Because in one second, the right thing to do is just be quiet, be still, not to try and fix it. 
and the next moment, um, then the right thing to do is to say, well, this is a tense moment, isn't it? <laughs> and everyone, everyone lightens up. But if you said that two seconds earlier, then it just create more tension. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. See, a lot of it, of this whole area is to do with a genuine development of mindfulness and a, a readiness to let go of our own program, our own conditioning. Because we're often preoccupied. The word preoccupied is a very good word. It means we're occupied already. We're not empty. We're occupied. And so that as a, when we meet a situation, we've already got a game plan. We've already got an agenda. We're already occupied. If we let ourselves be more empty, and then when, when we have these kind of encounters or people's, <coughs> people's attacking us or people, um, people's enthusiasms or people's grief, sometimes the most difficult thing to do is to be with someone's sadness. And that we, we are able to be empty with that rather than filling up the space with our own, uh, say, our own preconditioned ideas or, or our own agenda. We're able to leave that, that space open. I'm telling another Ramdas, Ramdas story was, uh, I told a number of times, where his stepmother was, was uh, close to death and um, Ramdas was at her bedside. And so he was, apparently, this is the story he tells himself, he was by her, by her bedside and he was uh, giving her some you know, guidance about following her breath and then if the, if the, the inner light arises just to, to you know, let go and to you know, open herself to the light and to, to let go of this and to, to give herself to that. And going on like this for an hour or so and then finally he paused for breath and she turned towards him from her bed and said, Ramdas? Be quiet. <laughs> and that's a Ramdas story, you know. So. And, uh, and he says it himself. He's just not being comfortable with that space and just filling the space up with his own program of, oh, I'm the death and dying expert. And here's my mom. You know. I should teach my mom how to die. And then suddenly realizing, oh, she's got something to teach me. Yeah, there was a question down at the front here. What about the uh, feeling of loneliness when you're on guard? Or, because I think that mindfulness has a certain element of being on guard in order not to be sucked into something or the fear of loneliness that comes from not having that empathetic connection. Can you speak about some other kind of empathy that, that might address the uh, loneliness? Um, or some other kind of practice that would <laughs> address it? Yeah. Well, there, there's a few, a few different things in what you, uh, in what you said there. Um, When, uh, with, uh, even with feelings like loneliness, what I would suggest um, is also to, to find that in your body. 
where is that lonely feeling? What, what does that feel like in the body? And that it's also something that we can make friends with. And that just like it's an uncomfortable feeling, it's like an, an ache in the heart, um, or, or however we experience it, but we can do that. We can, we can bring that uh, uh, quality of, of attention and openness to that, to that feeling of loneliness. Um, if when I when we talk about mindfulness, the, the it's a it's a single word, but it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. And so, if mindfulness of being on guard, and like I, I've got to not let you know my my mind escape to any of these sort of little outlets, all of the escape hatches. I've got to keep track, otherwise it's going to run away. Then that's a fearful relationship to mindfulness. And and so that if you recognize that then uh, and say, oh, there's a, there's a fearful attitude towards this mindfulness. Maybe uh, t- recognizing that then to lead in the opposite direction and let mindfulness be more in terms of loving everything. 